I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. Middle market businesses are where the real action takes place. Around 200,000 businesses in the United States fall into the middle market size range, generally defined as generating revenue between $25 million and a billion dollars. These businesses collectively employ 50 million people, or almost a third of the U.S. workforce, and represent two-thirds of total U.S. private equity deal value. Big deals may grab the big headlines, but a lot of action in the economy and private equity industry takes place in the universe of middle market businesses. Season one of Private Equity Deals shared deals from eight well-known GPs. In season two, we discussed eight well-known companies bought by private equity firms. We can't begin to cover the massive middle market in just eight deals, but in season three, you'll get a tiny sliver of what the middle market is all about. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of capital allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On episode four of season three of Private Equity Deals, David Perez discusses Univista. David is the co-founder and managing partner of Avance Investment Management, a middle market private equity firm focusing on U.S. services and consumer businesses that he launched with a billion dollar first time fund after spinning out of Palladium Equity Partners in 2020. Unabista Insurance is a South Florida-based insurance agency offering auto, home, life, health, and commercial policies primarily to the Hispanic community that was founded and run by Cuban immigrants in 2006. Our conversation covers Unabista's history and business, sourcing of the deal, opportunities and risks, and deal process. We discuss valuation and financing, drivers of the business post-acquisition, and exit strategy down the road. Please enjoy my conversation with David Perez. Dave, great to see you. Great to see you. Thank you for having me. Well, why don't we dive in first with just an overview of Avance? Sure. Avance is a relatively new firm. We started about three years ago. A group of us have worked together for over 15 years and had some success growing a prior firm. We were all getting to that magical 50th age where we had gathered some experience and had some ideas as to what we wanted to do the rest of our careers. Take a lot of the things that we've done well and add to them and take out a few things. And we form Avancer with the goal of doing that. We happened to start the firm right smack in the middle of the pandemic. I think the firm was started in May of 2020, so real risk off. And we took advantage of that time to do a lot of things that I think paid off later. Heavy focus on building the infrastructure, working with a lot of vendors and partners that were worked before, trusted advisors and others. And we had the time to execute on some of these ideas. Very focused on culture. We subscribe to this people-first culture principle that we've seen in other industries work well. We wanted to apply that to private equity. We thought about applying technology. And in fact, one of the early ideas was to apply video to what we were doing. And boom, Zoom took care of that. Didn't have to reinvent the wheel there. But also had an idea of what private equity was doing right and what were some shortcomings. And 
one of the areas that we thought the industry wasn't doing right was we were outsourcing too much, perhaps, the development of intellectual property and the development of our own human networks to others, you know, strategy consultant firms, search firms, and whatnot. And we wanted to build a company that had some of that in-house. And that doesn't mean we don't outsource. We do. We have a hybrid model. But our thesis was that you needed to build your own intellectual property and spend capital, time, and money doing that. And that would lead to having an edge, an edge in underwriting, an edge in value creation. And so we've been able to execute it, build a functional roster of folks in strategy, talent, business development, and others that is maybe somewhat unusual for a firm of our size. We're a first-time fund raise about a billion dollars, have about 20 people, just to put it in perspective. Two offices, Miami, New York, split about half-half. So very happy with the development so far. Again, young, learning, and putting the team together. So from that experience, what did you decide were the types of deals you wanted to look for? Sure. We were thrust right away into the pandemic world. So we had to take that into account. Everyone saying things, the world had changed it forever and there was a new normal and so forth. So we have been around for 20, 20 some years doing this. So we had a little bit of skepticism that some of that was going to reverse to normal. But we wanted to look at business models that were recurrent in nature, were secular trends that we thought were long-term, not really the acceleration of the digital world that happened around the pandemic, but other long-term secular trends would play out. We had been investors before behind demographic trends, like the growth of the Hispanic market. And we think demographic trends are a perfect example of those long-term secular trends that happen over decades. So as we looked at deals, we wanted to identify areas that were benefiting from the same tailwinds that we thought were sustainable in nature. We wanted to avoid cyclical businesses. We wanted to focus on founder-owned businesses. That's the bulk of what we've done in our careers helping founders that have created something unique just take it to the next level. There were brilliant people that took it from inception to wherever they were. We thought that we had the skill set, the knowledge, and the capital, the expertise to help them take it from that point and maybe double or triple the size of those businesses going forward. Focus on services, technology, and to lesser extent, consumer areas. We're looking at deals that about 10 to 15 EBITDA. So we thought that space was more ripe for opportunities. And we thought that integrated cross-functional model would be appealing to founders. It has proven to be so. And we thought that building a firm that put emphasis on culture would attract people and would build some loyalty. Again, it's early, but so far we feel very good about the progress. So let's dive into Univista. What is this company? So Univista is a fascinating company. Univista is a company based in Florida with a large presence and footprint in Southern Florida, particularly in Miami and Dade County. It focuses on selling car insurance, but predominantly to the Hispanic population down in Florida. It also sells healthcare policies, predominantly Obamacare policies, home policies, and some other related PNC policies to that customer base. Univista was started by a founding team of two Hispanics. They happened to be Cuban over 10 years ago. We had made investments in this space before in our prior life. We liked the fundamentals of the space. This is a fast-growing part of the insurance space and not very capital-intensive. You're essentially selling policies without having to put up your capital. And we also think it's a business that's really, when you step back, is becoming 
a combination of technology and marketing. Everyone can underwrite. You have all these computer models that are becoming commoditized. But what really drives success is how can you manipulate that information? How can you put it in front of the decision makers, whether it's the agent or the person selling the policy? And how do you get to that customer base and build loyalty with them so they get back to you? Univista had built a model that's pretty technology-centric, data-centric. They sell their policies or distribute their policies through a combination of franchisees, over 100 of them, and about half of them through a company-owned call centers. And they had grown quite a bit. This is a segment of the population that in the insurance parlor is called non-standard auto. So they don't have prime credits. As a result, they cannot really be underwritten from a desktop in Ohio or in Idaho. There's an element of touching the customer. So the agent has to have more interaction with them. And that segment of the population of the insurance policy, by the way, which accounts today, the non-standard auto is about 20% of the car insurance business in the country growing in the mid to high single digits is a fast and growing segment. Now, within the demographic subsegments and then the Hispanic, Univista has become one of the leading companies providing such policies. How did you find the deal? We had invested in a similar company before in our prior lives. We had an interest in finding other opportunities in this space. We established Avance right off the bat with two offices, one in Florida, one in New York. This was late 2020. My partner, Luis Saldivar, was networking his way through leaders in the community down there, was introduced by a local connection through these two founders, similar age profile to us, late 40s, early 50s. And we developed a relationship. They were in the middle of figuring out what were they going to do in the next stage of their lives, what help they needed. They had aspirations of moving from Florida into other states. They had aspirations of institutionalizing the business, which had been founder-owned and founder-led. So we connected with them. It so happened that the president and COO and the CIO had gone to the same school south of Havana that I went to. So we had some extra touch points there and share experiences. And they also happened to be very civic-minded individuals active in the community. So we found that It's usually the best in life. We found that a combination of their desires and business, their values and personality traits enables to build some trust and come to an understanding. So we ended up investing in Univista, call it middle 2021. So once you met them and knew something about the business, what were the key aspects of your underwriting process to understand how the business worked? We had to get comfortable with what was the quality of their work, of their product, what was the reputation that they had with their carriers and with their customers and with their franchisees? They sit in the middle of these ecosystems. This is sadly a segment of the market where sometimes you find smaller agencies that haven't kept up and haven't invested. And as a result, they've lost key relationships. We wanted to get a sense as to whether the financial results that they have generated in the past were well-suited for continuity going forward. In the middle of the pandemic, we had to assess whether there was something extraordinary that was going on, good or bad. Florida also sits in the epicenter of weather events. So we wanted to make sure we understood whether some past or any future weather events could have an impact. There, we wanted to assess the quality of the management team. What are the holes that they had? What areas do we need to make some potential upgrades? What areas do we need to hire new people? 
what technology needs they had going forward, what are the products they had. One of the things that we like, Ted, a lot in underwriting is to have different paths to success. I love businesses where you have four different shots at the goal because you never know what life is going to bring you going forward. You never know whether a cycle is coming your way. You never know whether you thought this was going to be a fragmented industry with a lot of M&A opportunities. And guess what? You get into it and the sellers have unrealistic expectations. You thought the organic growth opportunity was there. And guess what? It's harder than you think. You thought that geographic expansion was feasible, but you've never been in the other state. And one way to diversify risk and ensure that you have a return is to look at an opportunity and in your underwriting, develop and study different ways to generate that success. And what we like here was that it had multiple ways to get there. It had the opportunity to continue to grow organically. And we saw a path there to growing our call center, hiring more agents, making investments. We saw an opportunity on the M&A side. There's a fragmented industry. We saw a geographic opportunity of moving into other states, particularly Texas, and we're well on our way on executing there. And then we saw that we could take advantage of our results to continue to develop what is called an MGA, a Master General Agency, and essentially become a quasi-underwriter ourselves in partnership with others. And that only happens if you have the data and the results. And this is a business where you have to generate returns for your insurers. If you generate a loss for your carriers, they'll drop you. So you have to write good policies, meaning you obviously have to get customers, but say no when you feel you're not going to make money for your carriers. And in this case, what we found is that they've had tremendous success historically. So when we look at the underwriting, we thought each of those four paths could generate our return expectations. What did you see as the biggest risks up front? Having invested in this industry, call it 10 years prior, we saw that you wouldn't find the big multi-line carriers, the Allstates and the Kempress and whatnot, they would not be present. The carriers were the smaller family-owned businesses based in New York and Chicago that you wouldn't have heard of. This time around, the bigger carriers had discovered the merits and the opportunity and had bought some of the smaller So we thought that the fundamentals were better, but there's some degree of carrier concentration that you have to get comfortable with. By that, I mean that it's not uncommon to have 20, 30% concentration with a carrier, and it's not an industry where you have 20 carriers, you have five or 10. The carriers themselves, they can go out of business, and all of a sudden, what are you selling? So that was some risk. I think the fact that we were mostly a single-stake carrier had its own level of risk. So we underwrote Florida. We obviously feel pretty good about the fundamentals there, but there was a quite a bit of interest, migration into the state. We didn't feel that it was very cyclical. In fact, we have been investors behind this demographic all the way back to the GFC. And what we saw was in other lending businesses, and what we saw in the GFC is that this Hispanic demographic really needs their car. They handed over the keys to the home but kept their car because the car they needed to drive to work. So we felt very good about that. It's not a discretionary purchase. You need insurance. But we paid attention also to the price point. Particularly in Florida, the price point was relatively high. Wanted to make sure there's some stability. So there's some regulatory elements of that as well. We did some work there. What's the regulatory environment? Is it likely to change? 
And we felt comfortable with that. And then you always underwrite in founder-led business a certain degree of founder behavior and help. And again, you have to get comfortable that that happens. You can get comfortable structurally, which is what we do very frequent. And in this case, the founders are very significant owners with us going forward. So the second bite at the apple gives you some comfort that they're going to continue to be partners with you. So you hear the word proprietary deal thrown around a lot, but there aren't that many deals you're going to come across where the founders went to the same high school as you. So once you discovered all that and you found the business and did your work, what was the process from there to getting the deal done? Yes, I've been in this business 20-some years, and truly proprietary deals are seldom. We've had the early fortune at Avance with, was, I think, three out of our first five have been proprietary, but that's been perhaps a little bit of luck as well. We found it in this Hispanic market. You Right away, you go out to dinner with their wives, and the meeting is not at a restaurant. It's at their homes, and you meet their kids, and the referencing process is seamless and immediate. It's not like you have to ask for a list. You call people who know them, and they call people. People's reputations, frankly, are what's more important. So that happened right away. This checking each other out. Who are you? What's your reputation? And I think given our existing relationships in that community in Southern Florida, we were able to do that. The two founders have been very generous amongst the Cuban community there, helping people who had arrived and doing other things in support of the community. So that came through right away. And you'd be surprised how quickly we were able to find six, 10, 20 people that we knew in common and confirm whatever biases you had going into that conversation. What was the negotiation like? What you find in these situations, these founders are not Wall Street folks. It's not like they're going to hire the law firm that you're familiar with. They're usually high degree of loyalty. They usually have an accountant, a lawyer, or someone who started with them way back then when they were nothing. So there's an element of education on what that means. They're not used to generate the volume of information that lenders and institutional buyers such as ourselves need and diligence. You go through a process, you hire an accounting firm and you hire a law firm. And and oftentimes when you go through a legal diligence, there are agreements that are verbal and so forth that need to be reflected on paper. There's a lot of cleanup that goes into that, but they're very savvy business folks. And we had a back and forth and at the end came to a deal that made sense for both. Some of it was fixed. Some of it had an element of earnout and whatnot. And the one thing that I found about founders when you don't go through the banker, which is this process, is that there's a lot more work, but there's a lot less BS. Because the bankers, which I love and respect, sometimes that product belongs in the fiction section of the bookstore. So these founders are real people. They don't necessarily have multi-year projections and sometimes they don't even have formal budgets and so forth. And you have to work with them hand in hand. So, and that's what we did. Whatever projections we did were developed sitting down in a room several times and building the different elements of the business. And maybe that was the first time they had the opportunity to do that. And that was fine. So again, they're not for everyone, but this preparatory deals, you have to be patient. You have to take advantage of the time to make sure you build that personal connection because inevitably there are going to be moments of lack of patience and people being stressed out. But let me put it this way. You're building 
reasonable projections usually hand on hand with your partners, which has some merit to it. How long did it take from when you first engaged in the formal diligence to when you agreed to a deal? We were having conversations with them 2020. Then at some point when the real pandemic came out and everyone went into their hole, we lost touch for a few months. And then when the vaccines came out and people felt more comfortable, I would say that we reconnected maybe early 21 and close a transaction by the middle of the year. So it took about four to six months, which is totally fine. One of the risk mitigating factors in working on a preparatory deal is that whereas it takes more time, it also allows you more time to see how the business develops. You see more monthly results. You were handed out some projections maybe six, nine months ago. And guess what? You're going to see whether they hit him or not. So it's harder, but you're a more educated buyer to some extent. So I like that element. There's no better diligence than to being around an asset for a longer period of time. Where'd you come out on valuation and financing of the deal? So on financing, it was very low leverage. I think the founders were given their history and coming from Cuba like I did, and they came a bit later, but they literally one of them came in a raft. And Yvonne is a tremendous story. And these two founders, by the way, were childhood friends. They knew each other from first grade from a little town south. Amazing people, both of them, Yvonne and, and Luis. So we negotiated something fair. This business had been growing in the 20 30% year over year, continues to perform very nicely. Very low leverage, very high rollover from them, something in the low teens. So we both felt it was a fair outcome for both of us. So once you owned the business, you had these four potential upside drivers, and I'd love to walk through each one and see what's happened since. So the first is just organic growth. Sure. Yeah, the organic growth, that has played out reasonably well. They had plans to grow the call center operations that actually purchase a building and they were in the final stages of furnishing the building. And that has grown. I think it's been about 100% growth in the call center staff and group there. It took a while to get the right people and the right metrics, the right KPIs, the right incentives. But that's worked out really well. Very happy with that. Hopefully, there are more to come there. What's the relationship between the additional call center and the economics of the business? One of the things we like about this business is they had a process of attracting, screening, and training call center operators. And on the franchise side of the business, oftentimes it was the top call center performers that show an attraction to open a franchise. And you really want that. One of the mistakes that many of those companies have made is just to sell franchises and get the upfront money, but sell it to people who are not very experienced. If you do that, is you're buying yourself a set of problems in years to come because that business eventually is not going to go anywhere. So we like the heavy emphasis they had in screening, training, getting the right people. A productive agent is you get an almost infinite return on that, attracting selling policies, selling renewals. It's a very profitable addition to the business. So how about the M&A? We've looked at a few things in Florida in other parts of the country, and we haven't quite yet found the right fit. And one of the reasons is many of those targets have way underinvested in technology and in the systems that you need to do that. 
We've had bad experiences as investors in the past doing rollups that cannot be integrated. And if you cannot be integrated, you don't get the KPIs, you don't get reporting, you don't really know how your book is doing. And so we're not in love with doing that unless you have the ability to fully integrate. We continue to look. There are other parts of the country. But right now, we haven't found anything that we would feel would be more attractive than the other avenues for growth. One of the things that I like about having different avenues for growth is that when one of them presents itself, you compare it to the others and see where is my best return on my time and on my money. And we continue to believe in this case that the return of the organic opportunity, both in the current state and in our activities in Texas, and the returns that we're getting in the MGA dwarf whatever capital or human time and management time we would spend on M&A integration. So what happened when you rolled out from Florida into Texas? Well, there was some upfront work that was needed, regulatory. I mean, you have to work with the insurance commissioner to get approved, both to sell policies. And in our case, we were rolling out an MGA in Florida as well. One of the things that we did was spend quite a bit of time finding the right leadership. So to start a state is not easy. So we were fortunate in this case that a very senior executive from a prior investment that we had done in Texas had left that company, was somewhere else and became available. We were able to attract him to the company and he's off to an amazing start and he's been able himself to attract other people. We're opening a few stores. We think we're well positioned for success. And then even within Texas, we had to find the right entry point. Texas is a big state, and in our market, it, it matters whether you go Houston first or Dallas first or San Antonio first. So we wanted to find the right entry point. Done quite a bit of spade work, probably a year, year and a half of investment. We're going to do some brand building work also on the marketing side. We already sell policies into Texas through our call center and through our direct marketing effort, where this company is also a very proficient direct marketer through Google, Facebook, and other online channels. But I think we're now well positioned to have more of an omni-channel strategy focusing in Texas as well. What's the balance between being proficient in online, which is a technical solution, and this idea you said up front that in the Miami-Dade County market, there's a lot more sit down with the person because they don't have that data that you can mine to figure out what policy to write? That's a very good question. Insurance is even more complicated because to generate good results for your carrier, you need to underwrite well, and then you need to manage the claim side. And traditionally, the carriers themselves manage the claim sides. If you go to any city in this country, you'll see a bunch of little vans and trucks that carry the name of the insurance company. Usually those are claim adjusters and others. One thing that happened to the pandemic that we're seeing now is that this diligence on the claim side stop. So the claim ratios of a lot of these insurance companies have gone through the roof in a bad way. And again, if you're sitting in Ohio and in the Midwest and you're not have the boots on the ground, so to speak, and it happens in the car business, it happens in two ways. It happens in the shops. Some of it happened through inflation, the price of parts and other things went through. But there was some abuse for sure. And then it happens in the medical side, if you have an accident, people claim some things. So one of the things that this company has done well, and it's enabled this growth in the MGA business, is that they do have that local savvy where 
when they get a claim, they'll diligence them, they'll go to the shop, they want to see one now. When someone claims a medical situation, they'll go to the hospital. So having those boots in the ground are really, really important. It's not a desktop business. This company happens to be a very proficient buyer of whether it's leads or others on the online side, Google AdWords and Facebook and other ways to get the business. But it's also about tracking the visitor to your website, finding the right time to attract him, present him a fair offer. This is not a business that can be completed yet online. So you can qualify, you can get information, but at the end, they need to call. And at the end, you need to check the card to make sure that you're underwriting something. So having that local presence, having that local savvy, the fact that, frankly, lang- we haven't spoken about language, but 90, 95% of this is sold in Spanish. And by the way, cross-selling, one of the things that this company has done well is they growing the proportion of policies that are not auto anymore. If you bought auto, you need a healthcare policy. Sometimes you need a home policy. So one thing that the data has shown is that if a customer buys two policies from you versus one, the risk of losing that customer drops by 70 to 80%. Because no one wants to go through the paperwork or do two different things again. I mean, the delta in pricing has to be massive for you to invest that time to do that. So you get a sense of the different touch points that come into here. And we, meaning Univista, is in the business of deepening that relationship with the customer so that never go anywhere else. What are the special aspects of the competitive environment that come from being a Hispanic-focused customer base and Spanish language in acquisition? This is a business that if you go there, if you were walking through the office, everyone speaks Spanish. There's some bilingual customers, but there's a lot of nuances within the Hispanic market. That's probably one area to touch on. It's very different if you're all Cuban down in South Florida than if you're trying to sell to a predominantly Mexican-American community in Texas or a predominantly more Colombian or Venezuelan. And this is probably a tailwind what's happened in the last couple of years in the country is we've had this massive immigration. And that is particularly from the Hispanic community. Florida, for example, has become a lot less Cuban, a lot more multi-Hispanic. Within those cultures, you have to be best in class and you have to appeal to the different subcultures. But the core of this business is to sell a policy that costs fifteen to $1,600 in cash that you need to go to work and drive your car. This is one of the biggest financial decisions that each of these families make every year. So that agent that you sold you your policy and that gained your trust, you're likely to go back to the person, you're likely to trust that person. No different than if you were a middle-class or upper-middle-class person, the way you treat your broker, that person you rely on their advice to make decisions. So I think you're selling at the end of the day trust to these people. And this is why the way you present yourself, the way you deliver, the way you handle things, if they would get into an accident and handle claims, all of that is super important in building and keeping your reputation as marketplace. How do the economics change when you shift from the business being an insurance broker agent to a principal under this MGA? So NGA is a trend that's been going on in the distribution side of the insurance company. And and Univista is not the only one that's done that. There are many others. And this is why, by the way, private equity has been very interested in this type of assets, because not only are they recurring, but if you generate good results, you're able to offer this type of product. 
MGA has a lot of benefits. One of them is that you control your binding of the policy, the closing of the policy. And if you are an agent, you'll put together the entire information. You work with your customer to be the advocate and select one of the carriers. All of that is in a transparent way on the screen or on the phone. But then you'll send the package to carrier A and they will close it, the policy, and they will send you a commission. In the MGA, think of yourselves as being essentially the carrier. So you're essentially a white label carrier. You team up with someone who's got the balance sheet and the ability to underwrite those losses, but you're doing many more things there. You're identifying the customer, you're pricing the policy, you're binding the policy, and then you're taking care of the whole claim side of the business. So your profitability will depend then not on getting the 10, 15% commission that you get as an agent. Your profitability will depend on how good you are in generating those loss ratios and being managed. So your profitability can easily, if you perform well, can easily double. So from the same premium that you get, you can double or more your EBITDA of the same customer. So it's a massive value creation opportunity if you have the right results. So it sounds like this is all off to a good start. Even in the early going, there are usually some challenges along the way. So what have been some of the things you've had to work through in the period of time you've owned the business? The weather. Last year, we had two big hurricanes going through Florida. And when there's weather, carriers stop writing policies. So we had two massive weather events in 2022. I think we've suffered a bit from this lack of claims management follow-up that's been going on in the industry. The fact that the carriers stopped doing that because of COVID. So some of the loss ratios in the industry have gone up. Carriers are very quick to go to the insurance commissioner and ask for increased premium. And they get some of that, but some of the work, and we believe that their industry is being somewhat lax on that side of the business. And as a result, When that happens, they start to increase prices. They move policies from 12-month policies to six-month. They come up with different tools to create a lack of incentive to shrink their books in different places. So we saw some of that in Florida last year. We were very fortunate to have the MGA. It gives you another tool to make up for that. We've been very fortunate to have a business that's been growing. We've grown, I think, close to 50% or higher already in two years, in spite of what I would call headwinds in the industry. Now, those headwinds, I think, are now receding into 2023, I think. But the macro environment has not been a favorable one for this company. Ted, our experience has been that you have the two types of entrepreneurs, the ones that go to the board meeting and tell you why they didn't hit the numbers and these are the reasons why, and we whine about why this is not have patience and this and that. And there are the ones that came up, but this is what I did to generate the results. And I feel in this case, you're dealing with the latter. How do you think about the exit strategy of this business when you've come in as a very natural buyer and owner helping professionalize it as you look out a couple of years? I don't think we have a full answer. I do think that we've done a few things already to create value, not only the pure financial results, but this growth of the MGA. In 2023, we're going to be almost double of what we thought we would be in year five in that side of the business, a very significant contributor. I think if we make our mark in Texas, that's going to create significant value, another big Hispanic state. We've added to the management team. We have a terrific CFO as well that we brought. We've created reporting, KPIs, and other things. Historically, and I'm speaking here about recent history, you've had 
quite a bit of private equity interest in this space because of the recurrent nature, because the ability to increase margins through MGAs and others. And you've had a number of strategics that have been interested. The last five to 10 years, you even had big companies express interest in this non-standard auto side at 20, now 20, 25%. So that is creating a better macro environment, in my opinion, for an exit. You never had a crystal ball, but I do feel similar to having different paths to growth. I always like when we have different paths to an exit too. And I feel in this case, if we deliver on our plans, if we continue to grow the business, if we continue to invest in technology, we're launching new things. We're doing things in life insurance, by the way. We're doing things to compete with, not just on the non-standard side, but on the broader line with Geico and others. If we deliver on our plans, I think you're going to have hopefully the ability to present this opportunity to private equity or strategic buyers. What have been your biggest lessons learned from this deal? One of my lessons in private equity after doing this 20 some years is you can give advice, but don't forget that you're the one getting on that Delta plane, on the American plane, heading back home, and they're going to have to live with whatever decisions. So when you're looking at M&A, when you're looking at hiring decisions, people as well, you met these founders the journey to build that trust doesn't stop the moment you do the deal. In fact, it gets into a higher gear. So invest more time, make decisions together, learn from each other. You'll get to see what makes them click and not. And you get to see, by the way, what they trust of you and what area you can be more effective. All right, David, one more for you. What's your favorite aspect of private equity? What I like about this business is you wake up in the morning and you have an idea of what your day is going to look like. And when I show up, there is just a multitude of things that come your way where you have to apply your intuition or what you learn. And some of that, frankly, are new challenges. So it keeps you, man, for lack of a better word, private equity keeps you young. The challenges change every day, every week, every quarter. What I love about it is learning and seeing what other people are doing. The moment we stop learning, that's the moment no one should invest with us. As long as we stay open, I think we're going to continue to do well. David, thanks so much for sharing this great growth story with Univista and wishing you the continued success and growth of the business. Thank you very much, Sam. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 